President Marcos tours the region, an update on the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework and the latest on electric vehicles in Southeast Asia. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Andre Kanatsalagawa. Today is September 15th, 2022. On today's show... Because of the latest decision, court decision that you have mentioned, we have for the first time in the history of Malaysia a former prime minister in jail. That was Sophie Lemire, who chatted with Alina Noor on recent political developments in Malaysia. We're so glad you've joined us here today, and I hope you're as excited for today's interview as I am. But first, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Camille Bismonte in the studio. Camille is an associate with Albright Stonebridge Group in their East Asia and Pacific practice, and is a former intern with the CSIS Southeast Asia program. Camille, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So Camille, what's happening in Southeast Asia? All right, let me check my notes here. How about we start with Bongbong Southeast Asia Travels. Philippine President Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr. went on his first official overseas trip to Indonesia and Singapore last week. During his meeting with Indonesian President Joko Widodo, the leader signed four agreements addressing a five-year diplomatic action plan, defense and security cooperation, cooperation in the creative economy, and cooperation in cultural affairs. They also discussed the role ASEAN should play in easing volatile geopolitical tensions. Marcos later flew to Singapore to meet with Prime Minister Li Xinlong. They discussed issues related to the South China Sea and agreed to expand cooperation in counterterrorism and personal data protection. The leaders also signed a joint communique on the recruitment of Filipino healthcare workers. And during their discussion on the importance of ASEAN centrality and unity, President Marcos and Prime Minister Li reiterated a call for the release of all political detainees in Myanmar, including Aung San Suu Kyi. Overall, Bung Bung's travels culminated in a package of bilateral agreements aimed at enhancing Manila's economic, defense, and people-to-people ties with its ASEAN counterparts. So I guess this trip served as a test run for President Marcos's attendance at the United Nations General Assembly meeting in New York this month. That could be the case, Andreka, and Bongbong's decision to travel to two of the largest economies in Southeast Asia for his first foreign trip gives us a glimpse into what his foreign policy priorities might look like going forward. All right, Andreka, I'm throwing this next story your way. High fuel prices in Indonesia, protests and discontent. Can you give us the rundown on that? Sure, Camille. Under pressure to control the country's ballooning energy subsidies and prevent a budget overrun, President Joko Widodo has made the decision to cut fuel subsidies and allow prices to rise by 30%. Thousands of Indonesian workers took to the streets across the country to demand that the government reverse its decision. Protesters argue that the price hike directly impacts working-class Indonesians who are already reeling from the economic impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and rising inflation following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Over the past few months, the Indonesian government has tried to keep inflation low by enacting a temporary ban of palm oil exports and subsidizing the cost of basic goods. Cutting fuel subsidies is the government's most recent move to manage the economic situation, but one that is quite politically sensitive. Right. And this is the government's first price hike on subsidized fuel in eight years. It's too early to tell what impact the hike will have. But the government estimates it will save between 100 trillion rupiah and 200 trillion rupiah in energy subsidies this year. This is roughly $6.7 billion to about $13.4 billion. The government is further planning to allocate about 24.17 trillion rupiah, or $1.6 billion, in cash handouts to help the urban poor cope with the policy's impact. What a challenge Jokowi has ahead of him. But Indonesia wasn't the only economic development to make headlines last week. 
The U.S. kicked off the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework Ministerial in Los Angeles on September 8. Notably, 13 out of 14 partner countries signed on to all four pillars of the initiative. Just as a reminder, the four areas are trade, supply chains, clean economy, and fair economy. The odd man out was India, who walked away from trade negotiations. Even so, Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo hailed the meeting as an undeniable success toward advancing negotiations on a really aggressive timeline to deliver concrete and tangible benefits while pursuing an inclusive and high-standard framework. IPUF countries will now move forward towards first-round negotiations on each pillar in the coming months. Andreka, could you tell us more about some of the initiatives that have stemmed from IPUF? Of course. One really exciting development for Southeast Asia is the Upskilling Initiative. This is a public-private partnership that'll provide women and girls with training opportunities to develop digital skills over the next decade. Eight countries have signed on so far, including Brunei, Fiji, India, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, Thailand, and Vietnam. They're going to partner with U.S. companies like Amazon, Apple, and Google to bridge the digital divide by investing in women and equipping them with critical 21st century skills. Very exciting. If you're interested in IPEF, I know you and Greg Poling published a report on digital trade in Southeast (laughs) Asia last May. Check it out on the CSIS website, but shifting gears. Let's talk automobiles, tech, and how Southeast Asia is hoping to become the world's next EV hub. Let's start with Thailand. China's top electric vehicle producer, BYD, has announced that it will make Thailand the company's first production hub in Southeast Asia. BYD intends to build a production center in Rayong province with a projected annual capacity of 150,000 units. Units produced at the center are expected to be exported to ASEAN countries in Europe. Meanwhile, Vietnamese carmaker VinFast began handing its first batch of 100 all-electric SUVs to local customers. The company began its operations in 2019 and has since registered over 65,000 reservations globally. The company expects to sell 750,000 electric vehicles per year by 2026 and is aiming to deliver the first batch of their VF8 SUV model to the U.S. market as soon as December. Pretty exciting, huh? And for our listeners out there, if you're interested in learning more about EV developments, check out Danielle Fallon and Karen Lee's article on how Southeast Asia hopes to become the next EV hub on the CSIS website. And those are the headlines. Thanks, Camille, for stopping by. Up next... Alina's interview with Sophie Lemire. So stay tuned. Hi, everyone. I'm Alina Noor, Director of Political Security Affairs and Deputy Director of the Washington, D.C. Office at the Asia Society Policy Institute. My partner in crime, Greg Poling, is out today, but we are joined by one of his colleagues, Andreka Natalagawa, Associate Fellow at Southeast Asia Program at CSIS. Hi, everyone. And our special guest for today, Sophie Lemire. Sophie is a non-resident adjunct fellow at the Southeast Asia Program at CSIS. She is a political anthropologist focused on Malaysia. Hi, Sophie. Good to have you. Hi, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here today. Sophie, you spend quite a bit of time in Malaysia covering political developments, amongst other things. And I'm interested in getting us to talk about some of the recent developments in my home country. I just don't know where to start. (laughs) There's been a lot of excitement. 
Well, it seems that there is always excitement, in Malaysia at least, and suddenly, you know, the entire world got way more excited about Malaysian politics since 2018. And we've been lucky because we have had quite a few events since then. Right, right. Well, let's, let's rewind a little and talk about some of the good news or the better news. There's been quite a bit of good news coming out of Malaysia in, in recent weeks, which we'll go into. But I think one of the recent developments overshadowed by the politics of Malaysia, which you've kind of set the scene for us already with your remarks, is the economic growth in Malaysia. The country reported a second quarter growth of 8.9%, which is really pretty impressive and kind of shattered all projections of like 5 to 6% that observers had for the country. That rate, 8.9%, is probably going to go down because of global headwinds. But it also sets the scene for elections that may be called earlier than expected. So Malaysia is due to have elections, general elections, by September of next year, if I'm not mistaken. That now seems a little too distant for some in the political circles. And that's because of some judicial decisions that have come out over recent weeks. Do you want to walk us through some of those, Sophie? Sure, of course. Well, indeed, the current situation and the unexpected economic recovery from COVID, even if I think Malaysia is not yet out of the water of the economic crisis caused by the pandemic, but kind of set like the right ground for an election. So Ismail Sabri um, took power just a few months ago, and he was is a prime minister by default. Nobody would have, is it complete underdog? Nobody would have expected him to ever come to power. And basically, because of a lack of consensus, the guy was the man of the situation, the man of the hour. So today, we are in this context where an election in September 2023, as you mentioned, seemed to be a little bit too removed. But at the same time, Ismail Sabri, I think, feels quite comfortable where he is right now. Because of the latest decision, court decision that you have mentioned, we have for the first time in the history of Malaysia, a former prime minister in jail. So Najib Razak was prime minister of Malaysia from 2009 until 2018. He was democratically toppled by the opposition in 2018. And he was soon after that charged for abuse of power and corruption. He was finally sentenced and then he made an appeal. The appeal didn't work, well, for him. And he was just um, sent to prison a couple of weeks ago. This is quite remarkable in many, many ways, and I'll think we'll come back to that after. So today, AMNO is kind of splitted. So AMNO, the United Malay National uh, Organization that has been leading the country for 61 years until 2018 and came back to power after Mahathir, who had taken power in 2018, resigned is being split between faction. Factionalism in any political parties, whether we're talking about Malaysia or any other country, do exist, of course. But within UMNO, it has taken kind of a different flavor. So we have today the president of UMNO, Zahid Amidi, who is himself under scrutiny because he has an ongoing trial for corruption as well. We're not sure yet about what direction this is going to take. And I think a coming election could change the game on that. 
So, of course, the Zaid Amidi faction would be keen on having an election very soon because Zaid, being the president of the party, would give him an edge in the organization of his campaign and then, of course, in the choice of who could be the prime minister if the UMNO was to win the election. Knowing that even if UMNO has already appointed Ismail Sabri as the potential nominated candidate for a new election, things are not as easy as it looks uh, in the party. And then you have this other faction that now we can call the Ismail Sabri faction. This is quite new because, again, he used to not be such a strong leader in the party. And this faction is composed by the ministers, the UMNO ministers that are currently in the government. So in Malaysia, we have a very, very interesting coalition running the country. We have this uh, agreement that has been set on the federal level between Bursatu, that is the main party leading the Perikatan National Coalition, and UMNO, that used to be the party in power, that came back thanks to this agreement with Bursatu, and UMNO leading this other coalition called Barisan National. So on the federal level, we have this very interesting marriage of convenience, if I may say, between UMNO and Bursatu. But if you look at the state level, then those two parties are fighting during each by-election that we had. So it's a very kind of a tricky arrangement that there is. This means that currently the ministers from UMNO who are sitting in the government under Ismail Sabri, are working hand-in-hand with Bursatu. At the same time, the Zahid faction, the UMNO president faction of UMNO, is actually accusing this Ismail Sabri faction of being traitors of the party because they have allied a little bit too closely to Bursatu. Of course, Ismail Sabri would rather see Zaid Amidi going to jail very soon than it means he would have a full avenue to reclaim power in the next election. But maybe that's not going to happen. Did you get all of that, Andreka? Yep. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I'll put that in writing uh, in my sorry, next sorry. commentary. <laughs> it's confusing even for Malaysians born and raised in Malaysia. So that was a, a great exposition of where we're at. But I think credit to Ismail Sabri, you know, he, he was trained as a lawyer. And so he's sought to distance himself from all these political commentary and really tried to not align himself too closely, at least in public and in the media, with the outcomes of the decision. You brought up Zahid's uh, pending trial, Zahid Hamidi's pending trial. But Rosma Manso, wife to Najib Reza, also was recently sentenced to 10 years in prison. She's currently out on bail. Najib, of course, was sentenced to 12 years in prison. He's been in jail for about three weeks now. He's currently on a short leave because of his medical issues. And so this has raised all sorts of consternation amongst uh, observers in Malaysia. But I think that the cases, all three cases, Najib's, Rosmas, and Zahid Hamidi's, has really raised the, the expectations from all quarters in Malaysia about what it means for the institutions of the country. The royal institution has come under scrutiny in a way because Najib has sought a royal pardon for his sentence. But also, I think it's restored faith in the judicial institution of Malaysia and what that means for the democratic institutions of the country. But then, and you alluded to this, Sophie, Najib still has quite a large base of supporters within AMNO that Zahid is trying to galvanize for his own political interests. What does this mean for these different competing 
institutions and and tensions in Malaysia. What does that mean for the general person who's going to the polls in Malaysia within the next year? Okay, well, there are a lot of things in it. In what you said, as you as you highlighted, Malaysian politics is highly complex. So it's always really hard to make a very simple explanation of such a complex、uh, environment. Okay, first thing I think we need to establish a few things regarding the great hope that we have for Malaysian so-called democratic institutions. We had the same hope in 2018. It did not materialize. We have to be very clear about that. So I think we are. Now a lot of people are making the same mistakes as seeing Najib Razak's sentence as a sign of a healthy democracy in Malaysia or recovering of the democracy in Malaysia. I don't agree with that. Without commenting directly on you know whether he should have or not you know being sentenced, it's not the question. The question is that for now we have three people under trial. We know that the system that has allowed this kind of abuse is still in place. We know that a lot of people who were under investigation have not been charged. And we know that the political system and the political culture that allow this kind of feudal access to power is still in place. So that very system has allowed the return of Mahathir Mohamad, who was seen for the longest time in the Western world, at least, and to some activists in Malaysia as a dictator. I would rather say an autocrat because I think the term is a little bit strong, and he has been able to make a return. And this was the great hope that we all had about Malaysia. So today we're making the same mistake. We're saying Najib Razak being sentenced. He was definitely the huge scapegoat for a case that goes way beyond the man because the case is actually showing that. There is something very rotten, as Mahathir himself said, in the system in Malaysia. System that he took large advantage of as well during his time. Let's not be naive. I think it's a good news and not so much of a good news. We need to still be very cautious about that. For those same reasons that I explained, we're not able yet to determine which way the case for Najib and Rosma are gonna go. Obviously, if Zahid is being sent to jail very soon, and so would be Rosma. It can play on on different in different way. There is, as you mentioned, a, still a very strong support for Najib Razak.、Uh, there is a few reasons for that. The primary one and the one that people are, are explaining most of the time is that Najib has been giving very generous with his supporters,、uh, giving you know money and allowance, and and so so was it when he was prime minister. And when you go on the ground and interview people, you always have you know those people telling you, yeah, he took money, but he was giving money a lot. And so there is this idea, especially in a post-COVID recovery Malaysia, that Najib Razak. Knows economy because it's what he's been playing a lot on, you know, during the pandemic, building actually quite quite sensible commentaries, and that he's the man who would be able to、uh, to handle economic recovery, and he's the man who was giving to the people, and this is what he's been playing on a lot, putting actually Rosma in the back seat, and you know, <laughs> letting Rosma at home because she's the one who, unfortunately for her, carries this image of corruption. So it seems, but you know, it's always the woman、huh? in any country. Anyway, <laughs> we always blame the wife. Well, she has been sentenced, <laughs> and she has been sentenced. So this base that Najib had back in those days when he was in power has not budged that much. Some some of them, of course, switched to Mahathir, then some of them switched, you know, to Muhyiddin for a short while. And we've seen a lot of movement within the Malay parties, right? 
but definitely they're still there. And I think the sentencing of Najib is being seen as well. There's a bit of an idea of martyr and which, you know, Najib people have been playing on a lot, like, oh, you know, it's a miscarriage of justice and Najib is innocent and, and he's been playing a lot on the pardon as well, etc. It is a possibility that Najib will be pardoned. Actually, it's a very high possibility. And the fact that he has asked for pardon very soon has been criticized, but it's quite strange to me because Anwar did exactly the same. Anwar's lawyer asked for a pardon the day after the guy was sentenced. So I don't see where the problem is now. So we have that very strong case, very unprecedented moment of history in Malaysian politics, and that really can go both ways. If Najib had a proper political campaign, it could really, really take advantage of that. Then now we have Ismail Sabri, who could, of course, become prime minister again. He definitely doesn't have the kind of base that Najib has. He doesn't have the kind of base that Zahid can use. But again, he is in this kind of gray zone where, well, maybe he's not that bad after all. You know, he's not, he doesn't have the baggage that others have. But we might see the return of a few other dinosaurs, as you know. <laughs> they're, they're around. I don't know if I agree that there's a high possibility he'll receive the royal pardon, Najib, that is. Because I think there have been some signals where it's been made clear that um, it's probably not a good idea for the royal institution itself. And of course, and Rosma's title from the Sultan of Slango was recently stripped. Does it mean a whole lot, especially given he has about 10 other titles to rely on, and so his title of Dato is still there. But I think even if he were pardoned, you know, he still faces five other trials. Zahid has about 33 charges pending. Rosma herself has another trial. And so I think there is hope. I'm not, even as a cynical Malaysian, I'm not as pessimistic about the institution, particularly the judicial and legal institution. Um, I think there are, as you rightly point out, causes for concern. But I think that modicum of hope has been restored in the judiciary. But you spend a lot of time on the ground talking to people. What's the mood like? I don't think that in any case, Najib will be spending 12 years in jail. Mm -hmm. To me, it's absolutely impossible. A pardon right now is definitely too soon and it's not going to happen. A return to politics right now is, of, of course, completely not possible. Not, not, not possible. But I think that if we were to have an election, uh, the people focus is actually steering away and far away from the 1MDB case. And this has been going on already for quite a while. I think the, the COVID helped. I mean, I'm, yeah, I know it's, it's not great words, but yeah, well, you understand what I mean. Yes. The pandemic being of such gravity in the entire world and in Malaysia that that people kind of got away, you know, from from this very actually very complex case of one MDB, looking for answers and solutions, and there is kind of a fatigue, you know, over the case and and the fact that now you know Najib has been jailed. Well, then it kind of like revived a little bit the concern about the case, but I think it's not that much. People don't really care anymore as much as what we would think outside of Malaysia. I think that, you know, what's very important on the ground right now is stability. Okay, it's very inter interesting, I think, to, to think about the political imaginary of people, like how people think about politics and what are their biggest fear, right? Emotions do play a great role in politics and often we tend to overlook those kind of feelings. So there is always in Malaysia this fear of a potential riots, ethnic riots, this potential instability and chaos. This has been played over and over by politicians, but it remains 
embedded in the mind of most Malaysians. The longing for stability, uh, social stability is one, political stability, but economic stability and recovery is extremely strong. Even if UMNO had been seen as not a perfect party and leading not a perfect coalition, there is this sense of stability, this sense of protection that, of course, the party is playing on. So it is very clear that in a context post-COVID, where people want more stability, where people want economic recovery and job, UMNO seems to be the best uh, purveyor of hope actually. Uh, and it's definitely not the coalition of hope anymore that is, that is the best conveyor of hope. It looks to me like if we were to have an election in the next few weeks, which is possible, and I'm sure you, we're going to discuss that, UMNO will definitely be the big winner. And that I think Ismail Sabri knows. If we were to wait a little bit longer, then it as well gives much more time for PH to try to recover from the disaster that they have become. And it would give a little bit more time as well to Moudin Yassin to kind of get his coalition back together and finally see whether they can absorb or not the Islamist party uh, within their ranks. So, Sophie, this has been a fantastic exposition of the complexities of Malaysia's politics. We would need another 200 hours, I think, to fully unpack uh, what it all means. But I'm taking your predictions for the general elections. When do you think they'll be called? Well, I've been uh, looking at the stars last night and uh, it's actually quite blur, uh, very cloudy still. It would be either November or March. Excellent. This is what I can tell. We, we might have you um, in either March or some other time next uh, year before September. Hopefully. I'm ready. I'm, I'm here for you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Sophie. Thank this you has so been much. so fun and Thank insightful. You. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any questions, comments, or feedback at searadio at csas.org. And we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you might have. We're still a very new podcast, so do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Michael Kohler is our producer. Our interns are Nikki Arcado and Mike Tiernan. Our co-host today was Alina Noor. My name is Andreka Natsuligawa. And I'm Camille Bismonte. And we'll see you in a couple weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.